All right, we're in 1 Kings chapter 5 this morning, but we're going to actually start in Deuteronomy chapter 12. So why don't you go ahead and turn there first, put your finger at 1 Kings 5, but then let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Back during the Exodus, when God took Israel out of Egypt, took them into the wilderness on their way to the promised land, he actually made them a promise. We're going to see that in Deuteronomy chapter 12, and it directly relates to what we're going to study today. God had given Israel some instructions on what they were to do when they entered the land, and then as part of that, he gave them a promise. So let's go ahead and read through Deuteronomy chapter 12, starting in verse 1. We're going to read just 14 verses there. We'll have a couple of different passages we'll jump into this morning. 1 Kings 5 will be our base passage. Well, let's read uh, first, um, sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord your God of your fathers has given to you to possess as long as you live in the earth. He had just given them the law. And so he told them, these are what you're to obey when you get to the land. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the high hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire, and you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate the name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. In other words, you shouldn't use those high places to worship God like the pagans worship theirs. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all the tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and you shall, or and there you shall come. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all the undertakings which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Now remember, Israel at this point had come out of Egypt. They were each worshiping the Lord as they saw fit, as they wandered through the wilderness. For you have not yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies all around you, that you may live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings which you will vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters and your male and female servants and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I commanded you. So basically, the Lord told Israel that when they entered the land, they were to utterly destroy all of the religious high places, tear down all the asherim poles and the carved engraved images. They were to destroy all that when they came into the land. They weren't to use those places to worship God. They weren't to take up those practices, which, you think about it, that would be the temptation. You go into a land and you see how they worship their gods and you take the things you like from those services and you incorporate them into your own and you begin to worship God that way. And he says, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to tear those places down. You're not going to worship God like that. Instead, 
He says that God would appoint a place for them to come and to worship Him. He put His name on that place. Now notice that He said that that would happen after He had brought them into the land and had given them rest all around. That when that had been accomplished, God would at that moment set up a place, put His name on it, and it's there that they would then seek the Lord. It's there where they would bring all of their sacrifices and the first of their herds. It's there where they would go to seek Him and to worship Him and to honor Him. That takes us into where we're at today, 1 Kings chapter 5. Because in the 480 years of Israel's history, from the point that they left Egypt to this point where Solomon is now king, the Lord hadn't completely fulfilled that yet. They had come into the land, but they had only secured peace under David, which was... 30 or 40 years prior to Solomon. And so they had finally been established in the land in peace, but God had not chosen a place for his name yet. The temple hadn't been built yet. So today when we look at 1 Kings chapter 5, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the Lord's promise fulfilled, or at least the beginnings of it being fulfilled. We're going to see the Lord's kingdom foreshadowed. And then we're going to see the Lord's wisdom manifest. So again... The Lord's promise fulfilled, the Lord's kingdom foreshadowed, and then the Lord's wisdom manifest. Solomon recognized that it was now time to build the house for the Lord, to build the temple. It was a realization that he came to understand because of his understanding of the scriptures, because of what David had shared with him. And so we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 5, just the first five verses. We'll see how this unfolds. Chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Kings. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always been a friend of David. Then Solomon sent word to Hiram, saying, You know that David my father was unable to build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given rest, given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Behold, I have intended to build a house, or behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to my, to David my father, saying, Your son, whom I set on your throne in your place, he will build a house for my name. Now there's a parallel passage in Second Chronicles. I want to turn there as well. It gives us some more details. And the reason I want to turn there is because the language there more closely matches what we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 12. And it's in reading 1 Kings chapter 5 here and in reading 2 Chronicles chapter 2 that we get the fuller picture, if you will. We have details. Each author included specific details. And when you put those details together, you get a a better picture of what's happening here. So turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 2. What we see in 1 Kings is that Solomon tells Hiram, it's time for me to build a temple because God has finally brought peace under my father David. And so because of that, now that there's peace, it's now time for me to build a temple just as the Lord said should occur. In Second Chronicles chapter 2, let's read the first six verses. Now Solomon decided to build a house for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. So he's now set out to build two things, the temple and the palace. He's going to build the temple first and then he's going to build his palace. So Solomon assigned 70,000 men to carry loads and 80,000 men to carry or query stone in the mountains and 3,600 to supervise them. Then Solomon sent word to, it says Hiram here, but it's the same individual, Hiram. 
the king of Tyre, saying, As you dealt with David my father and sent him cedars to build him a house to dwell in, so do for me. So we find out there that Hiram built David's palace for him. Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, dedicating it to him for the purpose of burning fragrant incense before him and to set out the showbread continually and to offer burnt offerings morning and evening on Sabbaths and on the new moons and on the appointed feast of the Lord our God, this being required forever in Israel. Notice that harkens back to Deuteronomy chapter 12 where the Lord said, when I do this, when I put my name there, from that point forward, that's where you'll come to seek me. Moses said, you won't do at that time what we're doing now. Every man does his own thing. And Solomon recognizes that by saying that they'll celebrate all these things being required forever now in Israel. The house which I'm about to build will be great. For greater is our God than all the gods. But who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? And so Solomon recognized at this point that something significant was about to take place. The Lord was going to fulfill what he had promised to the Israelites 480 years before. But he also recognized that the Lord was going to, provide, or was going to fulfill the promise that he made to David. Because he says that in 1 Kings chapter 5. Behold, verse 5, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to David my father saying, your son, whom I will set, or who I may set on your throne, in your place, he will build a house for my name. So we basically have Solomon recognizing that the Lord is about to fulfill the promises. And it all came about because the Lord had accomplished peace, just as he said he would to Israel. And he did that under David. That's why David wasn't allowed to build the temple. He was a man of war. And God didn't want a man of war building his temple. He wanted a man of peace. That's Solomon. And so he used David to bring about peace. And now that peace has been established, and Solomon, as we learned last week, was able to maintain that peace, it was now time to carry out what the Lord had promised. So I'm struck by the similarities that we see in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles here with what happens in Deuteronomy chapter 12. It's, Solomon is keenly aware of what's happening here. He sees this as a fulfillment of the Lord's promises. Now, let's talk about this man, Hiram, here, because there's some other stuff here that's going on. Remember, when you look at verse 5 here, or, I'm sorry, verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, Now Hiram, king of Tyr, sent his servants to David. Well, Solomon, according to Second Chronicles, first reached out to Hiram. And he told Hiram, I'm building this temple. And Hiram sent his men back to Solomon with his reply and agreed to help with this temple. So, what do we know about this? Well, Hiram was a Gentile king of a place called Tyre, or Tyre, some pronounce it Tyre, some pronounce it Tyre. Tyre was the largest and oldest Phoenician city in the whole ancient Near East. It was along the Mediterranean Sea, about 150 miles or so from Jerusalem. It was originally given to the tribe of Asher when they conquered the land, but they failed to drive out the Gentiles there, and so the Gentiles were able to still establish their own kingdom. And so Tyre was this thriving metropolis with its own king within the boundaries of Israel. But they were 
under the control of Israel, if you will. And we know at this time with Solomon, he controlled all of the nations around him. That's where his influence reigned. And so Tyre was within that. But it was a Gentile nation, again, within the boundaries of Israel because they hadn't driven them out. Now, the king that's currently there, Hiram at this point, ruled for 34 years. And he was known for his extensive building projects in part because they had ample access to cedar trees, huge cedar trees, and these stone quarries. And so Tyre was known for that. They built pagan temples throughout the ancient Near East. They were hired for that. They worked alongside the Sidonians who were great stonemasons. Something else, the king of Hiram here was also known to have been the individual who colonized Cyprus and Sicily. So he was a well-known king. He had huge commercial resources. They had, he had a huge shipping industry, which makes sense because they were along the Mediterranean and because they had ample access to these forests of cedar trees and these stone quarries, they needed to be able to transport that stuff to get that to other places because, again, other countries would reach out to Tyre to build their temples and other things. And so he had this huge shipping enterprise as well. They were well known for that. And the other thing we're told in the text here is that Hiram was actually close friends with David. We saw in Second Chronicles that he built David's palace. And apparently, David and Hiram became close friends. And we'll see some interesting things um, that that probably resulted in here in a moment. And so, Solomon reaches out to Hiram. Now, we know that the reason, well, we suspect the reason that Solomon reached out to him probably was just because of what they were known for. Solomon is about ready to embark on one of the largest building projects that the ancient Near East had ever seen. And so it makes sense that he would reach out to the Sidonians since they controlled the lumber and the stone querying. But it's likely that David probably told him to reach out to Hiram as well. We find that when we look back into 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and some other places, David had made plans for the temple. He had gathered a bunch of gold and silver and other things to furnish the temple. But he also developed and drew plans for the temple. And he gave those plans to Solomon. And it's likely during those instruction sessions, when he explained to Solomon how to build the temple and what was necessary, that he likely said, you need to reach out to my buddy, Hiram. He built my palace. Solomon would have been too young to have joined in the building of David's palace. So he didn't have any experience there. But he probably knew Hiram because of that relationship that David had. And so David and Hiram had this close personal relationship. And so David likely told Hiram, or told Solomon, to reach out to Hiram when it came time to finally build his temple. So what are our takeaways from just these first five verses or so here? I think it's fairly simple. There are two promises that are fulfilled in this chapter this morning, or at least the beginning of this chapter here, or the beginning of the fulfillment. One of them is God's promise to Israel. He told Israel that a time is going to come when I get you settled in the land, that I'm finally going to give you peace, and when I do that, I'm going to put my name on a place. We're going to build a house for me, And that's where you will come and worship. You won't worship like the pagans. You will come here to worship me. You'll bring all your sacrifices here. And again, that was 480 years prior to this. So the first thing we see here is God's fulfillment of his promise to Israel as a whole. The second promise that was fulfilled here was specifically that Solomon would be the one who built the temple because God promised David. David wanted to build the temple. He would have built the temple. But the Lord says, no, you can't. God had used him for the purpose of bringing peace. That was his focus. But he told David, I promise you, your son, Solomon, 
will build the temple for me. And so we see the two fulfillments here, two promises that God had made. And the reason why that's significant for us is, as we go through the next few chapters, as we go through chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, that theme of God fulfilling his promises is going to continue to come up. You're going to get sick of me saying, the takeaway today is God fulfills his promises. Because that is critical to God's relationship with Israel and it's critical to our relationship as Christians. God is a God who makes promises and he's a God who fulfills those promises to us. Our faith is built on that foundation. Right now, we as Christians, as we think about what we are to look forward to coming next, is what? Christ's return. He promised his disciples, I'm going away, I'm going to come back and get you. We're told to look for him as he comes in the sky. That's what we're waiting for. Our whole, we've been waiting 2,000 years to fulfill that. And if we didn't have all of the examples in the Old Testament of how God constantly fulfilled his promises, sometimes as much as 480 years later, if we didn't have that as an anchor, where would we be today after thinking, where's he been for 2,000 years? We wouldn't have any hope, would we? Why should we expect him to come back and do what he said he was going to do? We can, and we could wait 2,000 years for that, because we know that God fulfills his promises. And Solomon understood that here. One of the, the aspects of Solomon's wisdom was he understood the Old Testament. There were some passages last week that we, we talked about where Solomon used language from some of the Old Testament passages when he spoke and what he Actually, I'm sorry, not last week, um, next, I think two weeks from here, where he actually, when he prays and when he dedicates the temple and when he gives his benediction to Israel, he uses language right out of the Old Testament. He was familiar with what God had said, probably because he was raised by David. We see at this point in his life, his heart is inclined to the Lord. He understood him. And so Solomon is keenly aware at this point that what's about to take place, that he is going to be fulfilling two of God's promises that he made to Israel and to his father David. And again, that becomes critical for us because that's the foundation of our relationship with Christ, that God fulfills his promises. He's faithful. He does what he says. What he claims, he does. So let's move on to the second part of this. I refer to this as the Lord's kingdom foreshadowed. We're going to read verses... 6 through 11 now, chapter 5. Now therefore, command that they cut for me cedars from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants. And I will give you wages for your servants according to all that you say, for you know that there is no, uh, no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. When Hiram heard the words of Solomon, and rejoiced, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord today, who has given to David a wise son over his great people. So Hiram sent word to Solomon, saying, I have heard the message which you have sent me, and I will do what you desire concerning the cedars and cypress timber. My servants will bring them down to Lebanon to the sea, and I will make for, uh, them into rafts to go by sea to the place where you direct me, and I will have them broken up there, and you shall carry them. Then you shall accomplish my desire by giving food to my household. So Hiram gave Solomon as much as he desired of the cedar and the cypress timber. Solomon then gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of beaten oil. Thus Solomon would give Hiram year after year. We're going to stop there. 
So we're going to look at here is the foreshadowing of the Lord's kingdom. Solomon contracted with Hiram to build the temple. That's what we see take place here. He reached out to him and said, I'm going to need some supplies. And the deal that he worked out is Solomon would provide the bulk of the labor. He provided all the wages, both for his men and for Hiram's men. Hiram then, in response to that, provided many of the supplies, most of the supplies. He provided the timber to build the structure. He provided the stone. And it says here that he floated those things from Lebanon. I love the fact that he gives the little details here that he says, I'll put them in the water, basically. I'll float them down. I'll make a raft, tie them together. And all the logs would float down 150 miles or so. And then you'll break them apart. We have to untie them, right? And so we get these neat details here. But the deal was that Hiram would provide the supplies, the building materials like cypress and um, cedar. He would provide the stone. He would provide the experts, the skilled craftsmen. He would take care of the transportation down to Jerusalem. We find out a little bit later that Solomon provided the transportation then from the water's edge up to Jerusalem to the temple. He had transporters, 80, I think it's 80,000 of them, to transport those logs. So basically what we have here is an agreement between Solomon and, and um, Hiram Again, Solomon would provide most of the financing for it and all the wages. He would provide most of the labor force. And Hiram would provide the skilled labor and the supplies that were necessary for that. Those are all important things. But the most important thing is what we see in Hiram's response to this. So I want to focus on that. You have to remember that Hiram is a Gentile. He lives in a pagan country which is dominated by false gods. The Phoenicians had many gods. They were a, a polytheistic society. They worshipped Baal or Baal, however you want to pronounce it. They also referred to a god just as El, which is a generic word for God. Another god, Balat. And then the most important one was a god named Melkart. Now Melkart was the head of the pantheon, the, the temple that was in Tyre. He was the king of all gods. Melkart actually means king of the city. He was referred to as Beldesor, or Lord of Tyre. There was also a close connection between the kings of Tyre and these gods, much like there was in Egypt. In Egypt, the pharaohs were considered gods. It was the same thing in Tyre. They were almost equated with Melkart. They were gods in and of themselves. What's interesting about this is we see this really clearly from the, Ezekiel, or from the prophet Ezekiel. I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. Later on, God actually slams the kings of Tyre. Or Tyre, again, any way you want to pronounce that. Because remember, Tyre was within the boundaries of Israel. They were exposed to Yahweh. Okay? And there's some neat things that take place. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but I would encourage you actually to, to read the second half because it talks about the wealth and the things that God had done for Tyr. They were, you know, you get a picture of the, the, the dominance of Tyr in the, in the region. But I'm going to read just the first, uh, let's see, probably ten verses or so. The word of the Lord came again to me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyr, Thus says the Lord God, Because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas. You are a man, not a God. Although you make your heart like the heart of a God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. 
There is no secret that is, that is a match for you. But your wisdom and your understanding, you have acquired riches for yourself. You have acquired gold and silver for all your treasuries. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. He's basically talking about the wealth of Tyre. They were master builders. They were skilled. They were wise when it came to these things. But the problem is, their kings thought they were gods. Therefore, thus says the Lord your God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God, therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you the most ruthless of the nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit. You will die the death of those who are slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God? In the presence of your slayer, though you are a man, not God. In the hands of those who wound you, You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Now he continues that all the way down through verse 19. What we get is a picture there of these kings in Tyre or Tyre that were considered themselves gods. They were equal to Melkart and Baal and El. That's the environment that Hiram was a part of. Hiram was the king. You would expect the king of of Tyre to think of himself as a god, but we get something very different here. Remember, he was a friend of David's. They had a, apparently had a close personal relationship. But look at what Hiram does when he hears from Solomon. The words that he actually chooses to use, verse 7. When Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly. And he said, now, now let me stop there for a second. He rejoiced over what? We're not quite told yet. We will in a second. Is he thrilled that he got a new contract? Another opportunity to build a big temple somewhere in the ancient Near East? That's my first thought. You know, why not, right? Get a big contract. It's a good thing. He rejoices. But that's not what he rejoices over. Look at what he does. He rejoiced greatly and he said, Blessed be the Lord today, who has given to David a wise man over his great people. So Hiram sent word to Solomon saying, I have heard the, measure, or the message which you have sent me. I will do what you desire concerning the cedars and the cypress. So the first thing we see here is that Hiram, when he begins to rejoice, he rejoices over the fact that the Lord has put David over his people. He recognizes Israel as God's people. But you notice too there, you probably have it in your Bible, that the word Lord there probably shows up in all capitals. Do you know why that is? When you see the word Lord in your Old Testament, and it's all capital letters, it's because it's the word Yahweh. The Gentiles, the pagans, did not refer to their gods this way. They had their own names, etc. They would refer to Israel's God typically as just El, God. But Hiram refers to him by name, Yahweh, that is a very personal name of God. But he's rejoicing over the fact that Yahweh has made Solomon king over his people, that he's given a wise leader to Israel. I want you to turn to Second Chronicles again, because we see something else. We see a little bit more explanation on what Hiram says. Second Chronicles chapter 11 is the, or Second Chronicles chapter 2 is the parallel passage here. Jump down to verses, I think it's 11 and 12, is that right? Second Corinthians, or Second Chronicles chapter 2, verses... Yeah, we'll start in verse 11. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, answered in a letter sent to Solomon, 
Because the Lord loves his people, because Yahweh loves his people, he has made you king over them. Then Hiram continued, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has made heaven and earth. That's not a pagan declaration. That is a Jewish declaration. He's the one who made heaven and earth. Who has given King David a wise son, endowed with discretion and understanding, who will build a house for Yahweh and a royal palace for himself. I believe it's pretty clear from the text here that Hiram didn't think of himself as a god. There are many scholars who believe that Hiram probably had been a proselyte meaning converted to Judaism under David. He may have been a worshiper of Yahweh. The language seems to imply that. The fact that he was a close friend of David is probably where that came from. So I look at this and I think that's actually probably the most important part of this section of the passage. And part of the reason for that is, when you think about what's happening here, the king of Tyre has a clear understanding of who Yahweh was. He refers to him personally by name. The language suggests that he worshiped God. We don't know that for sure, but that's what the language seems to suggest. But there's something else that actually takes place with all of this. Because we've got this pagan king with his pagan skilled craftsmen, and they join Solomon and the Jews in the building of the temple. Why is that significant? The reason it's significant is the Bible repeatedly, and this is our takeaway for this, the Bible repeatedly refers to Israel as God's people, but his plan of redemption has always included Gentiles. Always included the Gentiles. It's revealed throughout the Old Testament. It's made even more clear here. And so what you have here is a foreshadowing of God's kingdom, where Jew and Gentile come together, work together in constructing God's temple. It's a foreshadowing. In fact, in a few weeks here, when we look at Solomon's prayer, one of the things, it's funny, his whole entire prayer focuses on Israel's rebellion. Meaning, he kind of knows Israel's past. He's like, okay, Lord, so here it is. When Israel prays, you need to hear them. So, when they sin against you and they pray, when they repent, please forgive them. And he goes through all these scenarios. When they do this, when they do this, when they do this. But right in the middle of that, he says, oh, and when the foreigner comes in, and the foreigner prays, at this temple, you're the foreigner. So even Solomon includes the Gentiles in God's plan of redemption. And so what we actually see here is a foreshadowing of God's kingdom, which includes Jews and Gentiles alike. When people think of the gospel only being a New Testament thing, they miss the point. Dave Malin one time came up to me, and I remember what we taught on, I was teaching on something in the Old Testament, and Dave Malin came up to me and he said, i got to tell you, I get it now. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I, I, I get it. I, I get why you spend so much time in the Old Testament. And, and it's because it's one big story. Yeah, he got it. And so we see here God's kingdom foreshadowed. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read through another chunk here. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Remember, Ephesians was written to Gentiles. If indeed you have heard the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, Gentiles, 
that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. The mystery there is talking specifically about the gospel, salvation through, um, by faith, as a result of grace, and placing one's trust in Jesus Christ. That's the mystery. That had not been revealed until Paul. Then it started with Christ, but specifically how the Gentiles were a part of that. By referring to this, when you read, um, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. The Old Testament revealed over and over and over again that the Gentiles would be a part of God's redemptive plan, but it didn't reveal how that would be. Paul himself in the book of Romans says the Gentiles get grafted into Israel. That was the mystery. How exactly God was going to incorporate Gentiles into his people Israel wasn't fully made known. What was made known is that they would have a part. Remember, he told Abraham that he would bless all the nations. Well, what did that involve? It wasn't really clear. And so through Paul, this mystery of how the Gentiles are grafted in and become a part of God's people was all revealed through Paul and through the gospel. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery for which ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's plan of redemption for Gentiles and Jews is an eternal thing. It's not something when all of a sudden he gets in the New Testament and says, well, you know, it didn't keep those Gentiles in mind. Got to do something for them now. No, they were a part of his plan from all eternity past. In Christ, we have boldness and confidence, confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, Gentiles, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his strength or spirit, in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Basically what Paul says there is that God finally has revealed his plan for the Gentiles in its fullness through the mystery of the gospel. But it was something that Paul says was part of God's eternal plan from the very beginning. He just didn't reveal all of the details. And so what we're left with, as we look in the Old Testament, are these foreshadowings. God's promise to Abraham to bless the nations. What did that involve? We just knew that it involved the blessing of the Gentiles. Somehow, some way. We get to Solomon here, and what we see is that Jew and Gentile together are building God's house, his place of worship. Then when we get to Solomon's prayer, we see that he's saying, look, when the Gentiles come, Lord, and they pray, and they face the temple, hear their prayer. You get into chapter 8, which is what I was working on uh, just uh, yesterday. Um, He even goes on and talks once again about these Gentiles and how 
God needs to uphold the cause of Israel so that all the Gentiles will know that he is the one true God. So we get these foreshadowings in the Old Testament of God's kingdom and how it incorporates Jews and Gentiles. And this is a beautiful picture here as you get this king who at least was familiar with Yahweh. I believe he probably worshipped God. And he brings his skilled craftsmen and he's rejoicing over the fact that he gets to participate in fulfilling one of God's promises to Israel and fulfilling God's promise to David. And what an amazing picture that is, of how Jews and Gentiles alike will make up God's kingdom. Not just during that millennial reign of Christ, but all the way into eternity. What a great foreshadowing of that. Gives us hope as Gentiles, does it not? The last thing we'll see in our passage this morning is the Lord's wisdom then manifest. The Lord's wisdom manifest. So far we've seen Solomon's wisdom displayed in a whole range of ways. we Saw him settle this civil dispute between two women with their child. We saw him with his administration of his government. I think it was last week where we saw how he arranged his government and the brilliance of trying to manage this massive nation of people with almost zero experience. You know, he became king at age 20. You know, he didn't have a lot of experience, and yet he was able to oversee this massive kingdom and ultimately maintain peace for 40 years of his reign. So he saw his wisdom displayed there. Um, we saw his wisdom displayed as it came to academics. Remember, we were told that he wrote over 3,000 proverbs, over 1,000 songs. He had knowledge about plants and animals, creeping things and fish. He actually would lecture, and people from all over the ancient Near East would come to hear him lecture on these things. He was brilliant. In fact, we're told he was wiser than all men, and that everyone, or people from all over the earth would come to hear his wisdom. We're going to see his wisdom displayed in even another way in the rest of our chapter here. If you look at verse 12, it says, The Lord gave wisdom to Solomon, just as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a covenant. They entered into a relationship, probably a friendship, much like David's. But the author makes sure that in the middle of this passage, we have this one little verse that just sort of sticks out. And it serves as a summary of what was before it and a precursor of what's about to come next. And he reminds us that what Solomon is accomplishing, especially in the building of the temple here now, that the wisdom necessary to do that came from one source. And it came from the Lord, just as the Lord had promised him. So look at verses 13 and following. Now King Solomon levied forced laborers from Israel... That means in the area of Israel. A little bit later in our, in our study, we'll see that he didn't enslave any Israelis specifically. So this idea here of him levying forced labor from among Israel, um, that means he took them probably, in, um, what's the term used for military? When you, is it inscripting? When you basically draft somebody of sorts. They're not, these aren't slaves per se. These are conscripted. That's the word I'm looking for, conscripted laborers. They were kind of pulled from among Israel and told, look, we need you to serve for a period of time. They were paid for it. So it tells us that here. And again, that's because elsewhere it tells us very specifically that they didn't enslave the Israelites. So we have to interpret this as some form of conscripting instead. But it says that he conscripted laborers numbered 30,000 men. He then sent them to Lebanon 10,000 a month in relays. 
They were, they were in Lebanon a month, and then two months they would be back at home. And then Adria, um, Adoniram was over the forced laborers, so he put a man over there. So he basically conscripted 30,000 men from Israel, and he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 at a time. So one month, 10,000 would go, then they would return home for two months. Next month, 10,000 would go. And so he did that so they could still maintain their fields and other things. Okay? So he sent them to Lebanon to work alongside Hiram. That's the labor that Solomon provided. Then verse 15, Now Solomon had 70,000 transporters and 80,000 hewers of stone in the mountains, besides Solomon's 3,300 chief deputies who were over the project and who ruled over the people who were doing the work. Now these 150,000 were probably slaves, but they weren't from Israel. They were those who were left in the land that had not been kicked out of the land, the, the Canaanites, by Israel. And so you end up with these 150,000 slaves or laborers now that are working alongside Hiram's skilled men. And then Solomon put 3,300 chief deputies over them to manage them and to manage the project. Verse 17, Then the king commanded, and they quarried great stones, costly stones, to lay the foundation of the house with cut stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the Gebelites cut them, prepared the timbers and the stones to build the house. And so what we get a picture of here is this massive workforce that Solomon put together. I want, I want to kind of put this in perspective a little bit here. One of the other great wonders, if you will, of the ancient Near East were the great pyramids of Giza. It estimated that about 100,000 workers were necessary to build the Great Pyramid alone took almost 20 years to complete. That's a big project. 100,000 workers, all querying stone and building the temple. 20 years to compete or to complete. Then you look at this. Solomon's got almost twice, actually more than twice the number of laborers to build a complex that was significantly bigger than the temple or than the uh, pyramid. He did it all primarily by forced labor from Canaanites that had been left in the land, conscripting some, conscripting some of the Israelites to come work for periods of time. That's a fairly massive building project. It took about seven years to build that, and then he built his, his um, palace for another, I think it was 14 years, if I remember the math right. So about 20 years to do all this. Probably at this point, the largest building program that had existed in the ancient Near East. All done by some dude without building experience, who's likely in his early 20s, again, was probably too young to be involved with the building of David's palace. How could somebody do that? Well, we're told. God gave him the wisdom. Now, he had the skill of Hiram. There's, there's an element of that. David probably drew the plans for the temple, most likely, because we're told that he gave the plans to David. But Solomon's responsibility was putting all the laborers together and coming up with a way to manage all of this and to make it all work. And credit throughout our section is given to Solomon for that. In fact, in one of the other passages, Solomon is repeated, I think, seven or eight times. Everything's attributed to Solomon. The author goes to great lengths to reflect the wisdom that God had given to Solomon to do these things. And at this point, Solomon is fairly humble. Not until we get to chapter 11 where the guy starts worshiping pagan gods and falls apart and forsakes the Lord. But everything up until this point suggests that, that Solomon is this brilliant 
wise man with a humble heart and a desire to serve the Lord. A sound understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. And so the author here tells us that this wisdom to be able to do this massive building project was something that came directly from the Lord. And that kind of makes sense because the Lord says, I'm going to put my name on a place. I'm going to tell you, tell you to build a house. He's going to want it done his way. He's going to want it to be a success. And so that all happens. So what do we, what do, we do with that for our takeaway? I think it comes down to um, something I, like, I alluded to once before, which is that wisdom from God goes beyond just the spiritual. It goes beyond just what is learned through human observation. And it goes beyond one's own intelligence. Consider what we read back in chapter 6, verse 1. Or down if you... Is that right? Chapter 6, verse 1. Um, now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. The fourth year of Solomon's reign. He couldn't have been more than 24 years of age when he started this. I'm always shocked and surprised when I hear these 20-year-old billionaires. But you know, the reality of it is most of them came up with a brilliant idea and then sold it. <laughs> you know? Um, Solomon was only 24 years old when he built the temple. Probably no prior building experience of any kind. Um, and yet builds one of the largest, most complex buildings in the ancient Near East. That came from God. And it wasn't so much spiritual wisdom in that case as it was architectural wisdom, managing crews, HR, the payment of... I mean, think about it. He sent money to pay Hiram and all of his workers and, and all of that. Brilliant business man, if you will. And so wisdom goes beyond just spiritual wisdom. It goes beyond what's learned through human observation. It goes beyond one's own intelligence. We find that throughout the scriptures when you look at it. Not just in the Old Testament through the book of Proverbs. It's just about life. Wisdom is about life. The anchor to that, though, is a love for the Lord and a respect for him. We're told that that's where wisdom actually begins. I was doing some digging as I thought about this, and um, I'll, I'll admit this is not something I discovered on my own, but I began to wonder, I'm like, you know, I wonder how often wisdom comes up in the New Testament. And what's interesting is every single book of the New Testament contains passages regarding wisdom and knowledge. Much of, it go, much of it is just about life, not just spiritual wisdom, but starting with spiritual wisdom. It goes to how we behave with one another. It goes to how we treat outsiders, what we do when we're confronted with persecution. Every single book of the New Testament contains comments, statements, verses, discussions about wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. I got, uh, you, you guys all know that I love creationism, that kind of stuff, answers in Genesis, CRI, and other things. Probably my two, outside of just loving the, the study and the teaching that, probably two of the areas I love most are when you get into young earth creationism, studying God's creation, but then also um, archaeology. Those are just my things, you know. Everybody's got their bag of tricks they really like, and so I get, you know, moved by those things. So, um, Institute for Creation Research publishes this Acts and Facts. They send it out for free. You can get it. And what was really neat is normally there's a bunch of stuff about creation in it. This particular one I got two or three days ago focuses on basically stories or articles specifically by people they refer to as the pioneers of the 
creationist movement. Prior to the 1950s, most evangelicals and Christians believed in the gap theory, which taught that the earth was very, very old, but to make it fit with the scriptures, there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 that was billions of years old, and maybe it was a recreation, and maybe the fossils we see were, you know, pre-human beings, this weirdness. And it wasn't until um, Morris and then Whitcomb, you guys probably know Bob Whitcomb, but his dad, published the Genesis flood back in the 1950s out of Grace Seminary. And that really caused a a, um, return to biblical understanding of creation and a more literal interpretation of the scriptures. And there have been a number of guys that are part of that movement, and most of them are like in their 70s now. And so what what this actually does is it goes through and it's got two or three pages on each one of these pioneers. And their stories are fascinating as you read through them because these guys are are at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, they're working for NASA, they're doing this stuff that they're working in secular environments. Most of these guys had secular jobs in secular sciences. They weren't, you know, employed by a Christian creation group. Or, you know, unlike, in fact, um, Morris was a scientist. He worked alongside um, Dr. Whitcomb, who was a theologian. But even Dr. Whitcomb initially went to school for geology. And so what was interesting to me as I read through this are the number of advances in just secular science that these guys have been involved with. And I sit back and I have to say, why is it that in every um, genre of science, if you will, almost every science has had Christians at the forefront? Almost every one of them. Why is that? Because God gifts wisdom to his people. And it's not just spirit. We'd be fools to think that God only gives us spiritual wisdom. Gives us wisdom about life, about science, about art, all of that. And we've seen that with Solomon here. I mean, the building things, the administration that he did, the way that he maintained peace with his enemies, all of that, that's all assigned as wisdom that he received from God. Now it all begins with a love and respect for God which means genuine wisdom has to come from that. And so I was really encouraged as I read through this, some of the, some of the stories of these men thinking, wow, this guy, I mean, he was, he was a huge pioneer, and yet he was a scientist mostly and did side work for CRI or you know, other things. Some of them didn't get paid much for doing their Christian stuff. But again, working for jet propulsion laboratories and NASA and you know, some, of the, some of the things that, even, you know, I was reading an article about one of them on new theories of gravity. What, nobody understands what gravity really is. We just can describe it. And one of the individuals has been working on models for explaining what gravity really is. And he's well-respected in secular circles. Where does that stuff come from? Wisdom of God. God gifts his people. That's why the Christian church has been responsible for building most of the universities and hospitals and Mission or, and organizations when it comes to adoption agency, all those things. Why is it that God's people are that way? Because God gives them wisdom. And I believe that's one of the takeaways we can see from this today. So we'll wrap it up with that. What we basically see here today is we see how God has worked through Solomon to fulfill his promises, to foreshadow his kingdom, and then ultimately to manifest his wisdom to us. Amen?